0: all right take your bibles and let's head to luke 17 for our study this morning luke 17 and as you know this has been just an incredible study in god's word with respect to um, the lord as he heads to jerusalem and he's challenging not only the crowds but particularly the religious establishment over and over again and i want to address this morning what what happens in this encounter Jesus has in Luke 17, 11 to 19, because it, it really does raise the issue of entitlement and how a sense of entitlement becomes an obstacle to the gospel, particularly in Israel's life, and then how, how the implications of that are helpful to us as Christians to make sure we're never between the truth and someone else by having a sense of entitlement. You know, we, of course, live in a country that feels entitled. We are raising generation after generation of more and more uh, young people who have a sense of entitlement, that somehow the world owes them something, people owe them something. And it even now extends into the arena of their religious life, their spiritual sentiment, that somehow God owes them something. And that if he doesn't deliver, if they can't have what they want, if people in our culture don't get what they want, they they rise up not only against the people around them and the system in which they have to be oppressed, but also they rise up against any notion of a God. Because if if we worship a God who doesn't take away all of your difficulties and your troubles and give you what you believe you deserve, then what kind of God is that anyway? Doesn't he owe us more than that in a troubled world? So Luke essentially has been on a quest (laughs) to teach us not only the glorious riches available to the entire world of fallen human beings in the gospel, but he's also on a quest to hammer home this point that Jesus continues to make again and again to Israel. Look, God is a saving God. If you get... To the place where you're so entitled and so proud and so blinded by such things that you think God owes you something because you're so good, you're going to not be a channel through which his blessing flows, but you're going to be an obstacle to that mercy that's to flow to others. Remember, God chose Israel not because they were a significant people, but because they were nothing. He chose them to make them a channel of of Abrahamic blessing through the New Covenant to the nations of the world. And they were not that by the time Jesus arrives. They weren't that for a lot of seasons of their history. But this particular season with Messiah on the ground, in their face, the kingdom at hand, they were at their worst. They had become an obstacle to the truth, not only by exalting themselves above the nations around them, but primarily by denying their own need for forgiveness. They felt entitled to God by their own intrinsic worth. The Messiah they were waiting for, as we've often noted, was a military leader who would crush Rome and bring back the glory of Israel over other human beings. This section, then, is a a way for Jesus to illustrate in the lives of those that he encounters in this story. It's a way for Jesus to illustrate unbelief and to call it out for what's at its core. What is at the core of unbelief? It is this, self-glorying rather than thankfulness to God as the creator and healer. Unbelief at its core is self-glorying rather than thankfulness to God as the creator and our healer. And here's the interesting thing. Romans 1 had already said that. You remember the Apostle Paul said, Look, man fell when he stopped acknowledging God as creator or giving thanks. Why is thankfulness and gratitude to God at the heart of gospel transformation? And therefore, why is ingratitude at the heart of unbelief? Because we owe God everything We are entitled to nothing. We are the creature. He is the creator. It is as foolish, Isaiah said, as the clay complaining to the potter, uh, you didn't make me like I wanted to be made. You didn't do for me what I wanted you to do. How, How ridiculous to the senses such a perspective would be. Now, interesting here, sometimes a gospel writer will give that running chronology of the narrative that just keeps working through the unfolding circumstances day after day. And then at other times, an author in the gospels will will drop some encounter into the chronology because it drives home a point he's been making. And that's what Luke seems to do here. In the midst of this final journey to Jerusalem... Luke suddenly sort of reaches back to the beginning of this focused uh, path to Jerusalem to sort of drop in here an encounter that took place between Jesus and some lepers. So Jesus is on his final trek south, but right here, Luke, at the beginning here, verse 11, he he says in Luke 17, while he was on his way to Jerusalem, he's just reaching back a little bit to a little bit of an earlier time because he's He's making an exclamation point to what he has been addressing since chapter 15, verse 1. Chapter 15, verse 1, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him, the text said. And from 15.1 until this better part of Luke 17, Luke has been recording what Jesus has been saying to the Pharisees all along. You're an obstacle to the truth. You're blind to the truth. You're not listening. And so as Jesus is headed south from verse 15, 1 and on, the Pharisees are complaining about how he is spending time with the people the Pharisees hate. The Pharisees had contempt in their sense of entitlement for a host of people, but three particular groups. On the one hand, they had contempt for the half-breeds, the Samaritans, the people who were intermarrying Jew and Gentiles. Then they had uh, a sense of contempt for the outcasts, anybody who would be considered worldly uh, by their standards, even though behind the scenes they were, they were hypocrites. They had a storefront, but they were hypocrites. And then outside of that, those that betrayed the nation of Israel, like the tax collectors who, who went to Rome and became extortionists for uh, the Roman Empire to get money out of their own countrymen, they hated those three groups. And so, what is Jesus doing all along the way? I'm showing you God's heart versus you, Israel. I'm showing you the heart of God versus you, Israel. The parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, what did that demonstrate? God searches for souls. You guys block souls from the truth, God is after souls. What did the parable parable of the prodigal teach? It taught that while you might think it offensive for a son to do these things and therefore not worthy of anyone reaching out in mercy, God is forgiving and he's merciful like the father of the prodigal. And then he told the parable of the unrighteous steward and said, you know what, the Israelites are not as faithful to think carefully about their eternity as even this unrighteous pagan was careful about thinking about his eternity. Because you love wealth and power rather than a love for the lost. God wants you to be shrewd in using all your resources in your love for the lost and yet you're using them for yourself. You feel entitled. And Israel, you remember, pretended spiritual leadership but hey, they were the ones that taught the law and the prophets. How can you teach the law and the prophets and then have absolutely no interest in living up to it? Well, Jesus said it's because you, you love money and you love the power that comes with your money. And so it doesn't matter what the prophets say. You just deny the word. And if you deny the word, it doesn't matter whether someone comes back from the dead. You're going you're gonna to deny it because the word of God is truth. Not one jot and tittle will pass away until all is fulfilled. If you can't believe the law and the prophets just having heard them, knowing they're from God, you're not going to believe some miracle. And so then we saw last time in the beginning verses of Luke that he said, now I don't want you to become an obstacle between the lost and, and the truth. Stop getting between someone who needs the truth and the truth itself. Now how far had Israel gone by this time? Well, as I said, by the time Jesus is nearing his death, the nation's leaders were in a frenzy trying to kill him without inciting a, a countryside riot Because they would be cutting off the miracles and the displays of power that the people had come to be fascinated with. And by then, the people of Israel, under the leadership of Israel, had for decades followed their leaders in self-righteousness and had contempt for anybody that never measured up. Anybody that wasn't Jewish, they just had a contempt for them. And here's what they believe. Jesus is walking on the earth and the community of the Jewish people who would later cry, crucify him, they had believed what the leaders had said, that you're saved by virtue of being Jewish. And if you're outside the Jewish nation, well, you might be a proselyte if we accept you, but you're basically without hope. They came to believe that they were righteous already and in no real need of forgiveness. So they had a sense of entitlement there. And they came to believe that Some nations, particularly the Samaritans, were unworthy of anything from God. They were entitled, but you weren't. They're entitled to God's favor, worthy of it, in fact, and can complain against God when it doesn't come as they see fit. But you, as part of some other nation, you're cursed forever and should be shunned. This is why they would never accept Jesus as their Messiah. He came to them first as Jews and said, you're the lost sheep of the house of Israel, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know what they said to him? We're Abraham's children. Repent of what? We're not lost. What do we need to repent of? And then Jesus wouldn't, exalt, wouldn't acknowledge their self-exalted status. And he, he exposed their hypocrisy. Because he would soundly teach what the Old Testament was about. And it would show how they would twisted it to their own advantage. And then he called out their greed and their love of power and their pride that wasn't the worst the worst of all was that he was willing to go to people that they held in contempt and considered unworthy jesus was willing to go to them and give them the truth like the woman in john 8 who was an immoral woman and he said go and sin no more and like in Luke 5, when he sat down with Matthew, this newly converted tax collector and outcast, and he sat with all the criminal element that Matthew used to hang out with, and he gave them the truth at a dinner hour. And the Pharisees were entitled and proud and, and felt that that was completely proof that Jesus isn't the Messiah. Because he would never associate with people in order to give them the truth. Israel would never do that. They wouldn't reach out to anyone. In fact, they worked very hard to be an obstacle to it. So that's what Luke is doing here. He is giving an account of a healing primarily as a rebuke to Israel. Notice verse, one, or verse 11, rather. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. Passing between is just the word that means he wasn't in Samaria and he wasn't in Galilee, but probably leaned in the direction of Galilee to see, tw- to see at least nine Jewish lepers. They wouldn't be in the land of Samaria. So he's kind of on the line between the two. And notice verse 16. One of the men who was healed was a Samaritan. <laughs> so the Jews wouldn't even step foot in Samaria. Going north from Jerusalem to Galilee, they'd go around it. Generations of intermarriage between Jew and Gentile and the resulting intermingling of religious practices, man, that put a racial and a cultural and a religious hatred between these two groups that was palpable. But the ones upon whom Israel placed their most contempt, the Samaritans, God expresses mercy. Why? Because he's a saving God. The good news of forgiveness in Christ is for all who repent and believe. Now, the key, of course, is that you've got to come on God's terms. You can't come like the Pharisees would pretend to come with a sense of entitlement. Pretending to come to God, but behind the scenes, they feel entitled. They feel worthy. They feel like it's their right to demand something of God because of how righteous they are in and of themselves. So let's see how Luke makes this point in recording this story that happened to Jesus and in the providence of God, how God makes this point. The first thing we note is that there is, as Jesus comes into the village, a distant cry for mercy. If you keep it in an outline, a distant cry for mercy. Notice verse 12. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him, and they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, if you were with us in our study back in Luke 5, you, you've already known, or maybe you've read in the Gospels, lots of cases where people were in leper colonies. Leprosy is otherwise known since the 1800s as Hansen's disease. It's, just a, it's a, a bacterial disease that attacks the nervous system, and it is as feared today as it was then, even though we know a little bit more about its contagion, but Back then, they didn't know a whole lot about all that. It was incurable, and it was devastating. It would devastate and disfigure physical parts of your body, facial parts, all kinds of your extremities were in nerve damage, and therefore bacterial infection and disrepair and disfigurement. It caused all kinds of problems related to that, but those weren't its most devastating and feared consequences. Leprosy, in its most feared consequences, as we learned before in Luke 5, is that you were cut off from everything that is precious to humanity. You were cut off from human dignity, for example. You're required to remain in the same infected clothing because you can't have multiple pairs of clothing passing around the infectious bacteria. So the same infected clothing, you covered your parts of your face- where your mouth is because of the concern for contagion everywhere you went if someone got within earshot of you it was your responsibility by law to keep them at a distance by saying unclean unclean so you were advertising who you were the whole time not just by what you wore or whether someone could see the effects of the disease and the jews as i've told you before, had strict regulations about getting within talking distance of a leper. If it was upwind, you had no choice but to pass by. You could quickly move by them within about 10 yards, but downwind, 100 feet or more. Strict regulations. There was no human dignity left with a leper. Cut off from all human dignity as well as commerce and the marketplace. There was no doing of any business. You were beggars at a distance. You weren't beggars in the middle of commerce. You were beggars on the outskirts. And these colonies found no way to forage food other than what was left in the garbage. There might be a person or two who delivered necessities to them, but it was somewhat rare. They had to scrounge around, staying away from communities. No business, no job, no way to earn money, no education, no accomplishments, no advancement, no hope. And if that weren't enough, your families your friends, physicians, comforters, you, no one was allowed to go near you. One thing that a diseased person benefits from most is comfort from loved ones, and medicine is gone. And then if you had any religious inclination at all, sorry, you're not going to be allowed near the religious community, no worship services. It was commonly assumed that leprosy, in most religious circles, was some sort of curse from God. And so you don't invite that into the worship of God's people. And in the Old Testament, God did, in fact, use leprosy at times to pronounce a judgment and a curse. Sometimes upon God's people, it was used as a punishment. Numbers tells us that it happened to Miriam in chapter 12, King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26. So it's no surprise to us that at a distance, this group of lepers, 10 of them, is crying out for mercy. And it's likely that just imagining yourself in their condition, the stories had run up and down the countryside from what happened in circumstances like in Luke 5 when Jesus heals leprosy. I mean, they're thinking, if Jesus can heal, then, then let's just say, Master, please do something for us. Or if you have access to God like it seems you do, Plead with him on our behalf. If you're willing to go around teaching and healing and making people's lives better, could could you give us some relief? This is a general cry because of the misery of their circumstances. As I was looking at that, I just thought, well, this is obvious, the world. I mean, the world, in all of its unbelief, gets up every day, goes through the day, and lays down every night, and in an unbelieving world, scarcely has even a thought that there's a God at all. And if they have a thought that there's a God, clearly evidences that they repudiate such thoughts because they don't believe them. They go along in their life complaining about this and no job here and struggles here and diseases here and trouble here and death's here. Every day getting up, going to sleep, not acknowledging their creator at all and largely complaining about their misery and if they think there's a god they might get miserable enough to say could you do something could you just do something to relieve our misery i mean if you if you're there and you're as good as my christian friends say you are could you just do something at least for some of these lepers it might have been no more than hey life is misery and i'm cut off and i'm isolated I get it. I understand it. It doesn't surprise me when, when the world cries out in some religious sentiment through, through human suffering. We just see that recently again as, as murderers go around perpetuating evil on innocent groups of people. The fact is. It, it produces such terrible misery and people cry out to God. Why do you think churches open right after some national tragedy? Because people suddenly want to say something to a God in their mind, some notion of God. If he's there, could he not relieve some of this? I get it. People are isolated by their guilt, by the consequences of their sin, by broken relationships and devastated physical lives and Habits of life that reap all kinds of destruction. Yeah. This is just like the general cry of all miserable sinners without hope. So what does Jesus do? Well, we go from a a desperate cry for mercy, a distant cry for mercy, to a deliberate test of faith. A deliberate test of faith. Verse 14 so, at a distance, get the picture: 10 lepers in one voice screaming out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. Go and show yourselves to the priest. And, you know, if you know anything about Luke 5, this, this is just strange. This is just odd. The leper in Luke 5, Jesus walked up to him, which was shocking enough. He went close to him. He was within proximity to him, and he's, he's a Jewish rabbi, so suddenly the Pharisees are thinking, you're defiled. He goes right up to him. He's not even afraid, and he touches that leper. First he says, what would you like me to do for you? And that leper says, if you're willing, I, I can be made clean. You can make me clean. And he says, I'm willing, and he touched him, and he healed him. No doubt that story is in their minds. So they'd heard that he was willing. They'd heard that he'd touch. They'd heard that he would heal. I kept thinking, they must have imagined this moment a thousand times over in their mind. And they even remained at a distance because I'm sure they were thinking, I can't ruin the possibility. If I get closer, the whole crowd's going to shove us out and I'll never get my chance. Or maybe Jesus will be offended that we took the initiative to come near him. So at a distance they're crying out. I'm sure they've heard of his compassion, and maybe they're thinking, well, maybe he'll come over, maybe he'll ask us some questions about our situation, maybe, maybe if he wants to heal, he could touch us, and, and then maybe we'll watch, just like we heard happen to other lepers, as our skin is restored, and our disfigured bodies are completely renewed on the spot right then and there, and with all that in their minds, crying out for mercy, Jesus who must have gestured to some degree to the crowd so that they could hear him, you know, quiet down for a second, go and show yourselves to the priests. He leaves them isolated over there, doesn't go near them like he always had, which almost looks to some degree like he lacks compassion. And he doesn't say anything to them about their leprosy or about being healed. I'm going to heal you. No promise here. He just says go show yourselves to the priest. And then he heads off into the village. And interestingly, Luke then says they actually went in the direction of the priest. As they were going, it says. Now, maybe they whispered to themselves a couple times in the in the moment or even to each other, "Hey, I'm not healed. The priest is going to take one look at me and and I'm going to be further outcast. Maybe one or two of them asked the question, is Jesus trying to make a fool of us? Did, did we do something to so offend God beyond this cursed condition that he wants to humiliate us in front of the priests and the whole community? And maybe, maybe, just maybe, in a split second after that, they thought, no, I've never heard of him doing anything like that. And he's always ever been told to be... Uh, described as compassionate never deceiving anyone telling people to do things that are pointless that that can't be this one all I've ever heard that is if somebody does something he tells them to do they get blessed perhaps God will heal us through the priest and so they started on their way and the nine The nine Jewish lepers, no doubt, headed toward Jerusalem. The Samaritans were not allowed in the Temple Mount where the priests would do their examining, so he was probably heading off toward Gerizim, uh, where the Samaritans worship. The only way back into the community, as we've looked at in the past, is is an eight-day, very formal ceremonial process whereby a priest verifies, diagnoses and verifies an actual cleansing. It's outlined in Leviticus 13 and 14 and tells you that they have to go through this whole diagnosis of the skin, the hair, the scalp. There were regulations about ostracizing them, keeping them quarantined until this diagnosis of their, their condition. All their garments had to be um, verified as having the bacteria and then completely burned and thrown away. There was a ritual for the rehabilitation of a healed leper to make sure that he was, he, there was not some way in which he would enter back into the community and his lifestyle would bring these things again. The diagnosis of the leprosy of houses probably caused some of uh, the, the destruction of those colonies in that area as the bacteria spread. So they had to be completely rid of all of that. All this was part of the ritual outlined in Leviticus. And after you were declared clean and completely free of the signs of the disease, you were then formally and ceremonially introduced back into humanity and society and your family and into the spiritual community. And so you say, what is Jesus doing here? Well, it doesn't say how long on their little journey that the next thing happened, but it is true that Jesus would often test somebody's faith. He would at times, before he actually displayed power, uh, would draw them out. Sometimes in a conversion experience, you can, you can look back as someone came to Christ and you can see what God is doing. At times, he, he's doing what he tells us he's doing in a test or a trial, James chapter 1, so that the testing of your faith produces endurance and sometimes at conversion he he's doing that he's exposing the work of genuine faith in a humbled and miserable heart as opposed to entitlement and pride that might look like it's initially obeying but is really dead faith there's no real worship there's no real humility And Jesus is exposing these things sometimes, and to do so, he wants to draw out genuine faith if there is any there, and he's going to strengthen it by calling that person to respond to God in a way that submits the heart, and it's going to expose someone who may say all the right things, but there is no real genuine faith. He knew what people wanted. But he sometimes asked them what they wanted, like the leper in Luke 5. What do you want me to do for you? I mean, he could have said, don't you know? I'm a leper. Could you heal me? No, but the leper was drawn out. I know that if you are willing, I can be cleaned, can be cleansed. That's faith being drawn out. And sometimes he healed with a word, other times with a touch, sometimes from a distance. So far, all ten lepers head off to go show themselves to the priest, and they go off as lepers. And then notice, as they were going, they were cleansed. (laughs) So you have this distant cry for mercy, this deliberate test of faith, and then... And then this dramatic reversal of life, and it's barely mentioned. Don't you love that? I just, the scriptures does not respect humanity. The scriptures puts God on display. The scriptures are about glorifying God, and it isn't how we would write it, because we would love to talk about ourselves. And as they were walking, a light started to burst out of the clouds toward them. And choirs started singing. And they looked at each other and the skin started to move. And we would put cinematic drama to it. Why? Because we want to take it on the road. And human beings are notorious for worshiping experiences. God cannot stand when we rely on experiences. He wants us relying solely by faith on him. This is why something that happened to you, as real as it was to you, doesn't matter because it's unverifiable and it is unrepeatable. Unless God says it's a universal experience for every Christian, it doesn't matter. That's why Paul didn't talk about going to the third heaven. For years, he didn't talk about it at all, but he was forced to by the Corinthians because all those false teachers were saying, oh, we've been to heaven, we talked to God, and he says, well, look, let me tell you about a man. I don't know whether it was in the body or out of the body. I won't even tell you first person, but I know a guy who went to the third heaven, and I was witnessing things I was forbidden to speak about. Why? Because it's unverifiable. Only I experienced it. You, You weren't there, so it's unverifiable and it's unrepeatable. It's not universal. I love how God does that. God downplays these things because we are notorious for worshiping artifacts and experiences and our own assessment of things. And all we have is God's word. As they went along, they were cleansed. I mean, think of it. Ten guys cleansed instantly of this misery, physically, instantly. And all Luke says about it is, as they were going, they were cleansed. It's just, it's just humbling. But it leads to something. Not only the dramatic reversal of life, but then this display of genuine worship. Notice, verse 15. Now, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back. Glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. Now listen, this is the heart and soul of the contrast right here because of the rhetorical questions Jesus asks after this man comes back. We know this is the point of the whole thing. This is genuine faith versus false faith. This is someone with a sense of humility and no entitlement compared to somebody, nine of them, that have a sense of entitlement. Beloved, this is what keeps people from the gospel is going up every day throughout their business thinking nothing of the creator and then when something akin to living in a fallen world happens to them, they rail at God. What in the world kind of God are you that makes me go through this? Oh yeah, yeah, I understand I haven't acknowledged you all my life and I don't care about you but if you are who you say you are and you can't remove these things from me, I'm not going to worship you see, that is a heart of entitlement that keeps people from the gospel. Notice the difference here. First of all, he recognized it as a mercy, not an entitlement. When he saw that he had been healed. Look, you can interject every one of these right into the implications of your Christian life and why our heart drifts toward a sense of entitlement even as Christians. Because I forget that when I was saved... It was a mercy. I was not more savable. I didn't have some measure of prevenient grace wrapped up in the image of God in me that made me look at Christ and in the goodness of my own evaluation I chose Him. Oh no. By grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God spiritually speaking for a christian we ought never to feel entitled because of this very thing when we saw that we have been redeemed that's right you know sometimes in my christian life throughout my christian life i've been reminded with conviction sometimes and heaviness by the holy spirit hey if god saved you And right after he saved you, he said, look, I've saved you. And now from now on till you get to heaven, which is guaranteed to you, I am going to leave you to the miseries of the fallen world. And you will be in the world's eyes the most pathetic individual that they have ever seen in humanity. Is that okay with you? Is that okay? Because if you hesitate, there is still in us a sense of entitlement. But God, but Lord, but in giving me mercy, didn't you guarantee that I wouldn't have these things? Really? What did Jesus say to his disciples? In the world, you have tribulation. Take courage. You're not going to experience all that tribulation. I'm going to keep you from it. No, that's a a bad translation. (laughs) In the world, you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. Is it okay with you that you have received mercy? That is a heart that is being stripped of his entitlement. When he saw that he'd been healed. And what happened? He sought Jesus. He turned back. He said, wait a minute. Aren't they told by Jesus to go to the priest? Yes. I can understand why the rest of the guys didn't come back. They went to the priest. I mean, they can't wait to have this verified so they can, what? Go back to the life that they envied in everyone else and felt unjustly treated by God. That they had to live this kind of life instead of that? Entitlement? God, you owe me something? The world and its fallenness is not due to man's sin, it's due to you allowing these things to go on and come into our life. No, he knew, I have got to go see the one through whom this came because I know now that everything I heard about him is true. He turned back. And notice he openly testified. I love this phrase, glorifying God with a loud voice. He is openly testifying. It's no longer unclean, unclean, unclean. In a sense, he's just clean, I'm clean, I'm clean. Not just physically, but you want to know what else is going on in my life? God has shown me mercy. I don't deserve mercy. I've got to find Jesus. He turned back. You say, how do we know this was genuine humility he fell on his face at his feet giving thanks to him it's interesting glorifying God giving thanks to Jesus there's your connection right there you are who you say you are he should be thanking God he was he was thanking God in Christ he went to the source you are who you say you are You're my master. I I said generally, Lord, have mercy on me. You're my master. Now I know you're my master. Because you did have mercy on an unworthy recipient. There is no sense of entitlement in him. No sense that God owes him a disease-free life on earth. No sense that he deserves the comforts of life that all the non-leprous persons around him were experiencing and enjoying. And yet even after we come to Christ, how often do we slip right back into this? Complaining against God, acting as though he owes us something. He's not fair. He's not good. Really? When you saw that you had been given mercy in the gospel, is it enough for you to openly testify of this Master? through whom the power of God came to you? And do you not fall at his, on your face and at his feet? This is, this is an ancient gesture of complete and absolute homage. And he gave thanks to him. And then Luke adds the, the gut level, heart, and issue right here. This is the smart bomb of the passage. And he was a Samaritan. 10 lepers. Don't you find it ironic that the Jews, when diseased, loved the misery even of the company of a Samaritan? Isn't that interesting? And they wouldn't dare hobnob with the Samaritans, but having felt like they could complain against God, they joined in it through the years with, with even their enemies. You owe me something. Luke tells us he was a Samaritan because that's the central issue. And so it becomes then a direct reproof to Israel. There's a distant cry for mercy, a deliberate test of faith, a dramatic reversal of life, a display of genuine worship on the part of one, the outcast, and a direct reproof to Israel. Notice... Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed, but the nine, where are they? And he is saying two things here, don't miss it. One is, where is the genuine gratitude of my people? The ones who are supposed to lead people to the mercy of God. Where is their genuine gratitude? Isn't that proof enough of what he's been saying? You don't love God. You don't love sinners. You don't love the truth or the Old Testament or the prophets or the law. You love yourselves. And you make the world worship you. And in so doing, you block them from the mercy of God while you pretend to be granting the mercy of God. Where is the genuine gratitude of my people? And then he's saying a second thing here. You don't have this happen to you and not come back to Jesus unless you just don't believe him. Unless you believe you're entitled. He is saying you ought to come back to him. And in a, in a very extended sense, the implication is true for us. If you are in Christ, you ought to devote your life to Christ. You know, people say we ought to Obey the Lord out of love. Yes, you ought to obey him out of love. But if you think for one minute that obeying Christ out of genuine love precludes obeying him out of your sense of duty to him as your master, as a slave of the most worthy leader and ruler of all, the most worthy savior, then you are sadly mistaken. We have been redeemed. We ought to come back to Christ and our entire life be offered to him as a living sacrifice of gratitude right? That's what the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13 says. Let us continually offer up our praise as gratitude. They should have come back, Jesus says. Where are they? And then he asks, is it only foreigners giving glory to God? Wow. My people aren't giving glory to God, but the foreigner is. What does that say? That says, look, God is extending his mercy past Israel. You guys have missed it. You think there's a people Anywhere worthy of the gospel? And yet God says, you're to be a channel through which it flows to foreigners, outcasts, people who you'd never thought would come to Christ. Give them the truth. And so Jesus says to this healed leper, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. I love this point because it's illustrating for us how salvation comes. It comes first through the stripping of ourselves of us. The complete stripping of ourselves of any sense of worthiness in us. And then it comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in God through Jesus Christ. By the way, some wild views through the years have tried to make faith some sort of power that you use, you know, the charismatic and prosperity gospel movements, name it and claim it, that somehow faith is some force, that if you can harness it by sheer human confidence uh, and declare it with these words that are supposed to be declarations of faith, you can create your own reality. That isn't Jesus' point here. The word saved here is the word for salvation, but the faith here is an instrument, just like Ephesians 2. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Faith has to have an object, and the object has to be powerful enough to save. You believe in yourself, like Disney says, you're done. If you put faith in faith, you're done, because faith is nothing. It's just an instrument by which you entrust yourself completely to God open-handedly and grasp hold of his will by his promised character. That's what faith is. To believe God is to give yourself at his disposal. You own me. You deserve my worship. I deserve to know nothing but you and to know your will and to submit to your will. I believe everything. I entrust my entire eternity here and now to you. And all that you've said you are, because it's you who said it, and you're a God of perfections and you're my creator i'm stripped of all worthiness in myself it's only you and so i throw myself on your mercy and grace through the instrument of faith faith has to have an object it's christ it's christ he's the object of our faith and so jesus says here to this to this leper your faith has redeemed you Stand up and go. Your faith has redeemed you. Not your faith has made you physically well. Jesus made him physically well. There's no indication that he came back and worshipped before this at all. But he was moving in that direction as a sense of entitlement was leaving him. So, beloved, when conversion happens, it's because a human being in the misery of their guilt and circumstances, whether they're rich or poor, educated or not, whether they're in a community of people or outcasts of society, doesn't matter. doesn't matter their background if they, by the miserable condition and guilt of their sinfulness, are brought to the place of a softening and a pliability and a humility being drawn by the sovereign grace of God, they will begin to express these kinds of things. I am not worthy. I am not entitled. Any gospel that includes both the language of I want Jesus and yet I'm somebody is a false gospel. It's a false gospel. Any gospel that says that God is the one who saves, but you have enough prevenient grace in yourself to actually get yourself there in your own power, that you're utterly free and in no need of God's sovereign mercy. It's a false gospel. It's not true. Any sense of human worthiness, human works, law-keeping, any sense that you are in and of yourself good enough or worthy of God's attraction or not worthy of condemnation and judgment, any of those things will keep you from Christ But when God is saving, it may be expressed in a thousand different ways by a thousand different believers, but it has to have this at its core Lord, I give you thanks. You're my creator. I've offended you, and I'm unworthy of this mercy. And yet you've shown me mercy. And you've offered me the cross. And who am I? I am nothing. And yet you have given me this grace. And it results in a bowing down before the Lord. Look, I don't owe my life to Christ because I can somehow pay him back. That's absurd. But I owe him my life as an act of worship. Because he's a saving God who fixed his heart on an unworthy condemned sinner. And as you live as a Christian, you you have to be careful not to drift into a sense of entitlement. Well, I've been a part of the church and I'm I'm more worthy than the next person, or I have this or I have that. We're not entitled people. You say, well, haven't we been given everything in Christ? Yes, he's entitled. Everything he's purchased from his Father, we get freely by grace. Isn't that amazing? We're not entitled to it in and of ourselves. It's been given to us and guaranteed by Christ. He's entitled. So we owe him our allegiance and our heart and our humility. and our. You can't look across the aisle and say, well, Lord, they, they get better things in this life than I do. Yeah? And, and, and if that's going to bring glory to God for his purposes, is that not okay? You've been shown mercy. Is that not okay with you? This is... What Jesus says to Israel, you missed it because of your sense of yourselves. And this slipper didn't miss it. He's the only one. What a rebuke to religious pride that says, God owes me something. Beloved, God owes us nothing. We owe him everything, naturally and then supernaturally. What a privilege it is to serve God. I mean, we learn this. Amen? Let's bow together. Lord, this man, when he saw he was healed, he, he recognized it as a mercy, even though he'd lived so long in the misery of it. When we suffer, our hearts gravitate immediately for relief, and like caged animals, we seek relief by blaming you. But we've been granted mercy in the gospel. We have nothing to say. We're saved by grace. And and you've freely given us all things in the gospel because you freely gave us yourself. If you laid your life down, which is the greater work, why would we imagine that there's some lesser work going on that would not give us freely all things? And Lord, he turned back to see you Are we seeking you as the source and always acknowledging you as the source and always trusting you as the source and crushed in our pride because we don't trust you? And are we openly testifying with a loud voice that the glory goes to you or do we like to see it reflected on us? How tragic. To be in a state of spiritual leprosy because we... We want to go back to self glory and to fall on our faces at your feet in submissiveness and humility before your word and to give thanks to you all our days, every day, all day, in everything. No sense of entitlement. God owes us nothing. Lord, may we live that way, not in self loathing, but in joy and gripped always by the salvation granted to us in Christ that that we now have as an eternal inheritance. What could we ever want here that would somehow cause us in the lack of it to complain against you? We have everything in Christ. So help us to learn from even this rebuke to Israel. You're such a saving God, a merciful God. Thank you for your patience with us. Help us grow by your spirit in Christ's name, amen.